the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And as much as so much of our focus these last three, four weeks, and rightfully so, has been on mitigating the spread of COVID-19, addressing the immediate medical needs of those that have been impacted by this disease, it has also been said that we need to think to the future. What is America going to look like after COVID-19? How different will it be? And what will the process look like as we move from our current shelter-in-place scenario to a little greater sense of normalcy, even if it becomes a new normalcy? Well, to offer some insights, we're joined now by the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, best-selling author, Reverend Samuel Rodriguez. He has been recently appointed to the commission that's going to be looking at bringing America back online. And Reverend Rodriguez, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Honored to be with you. This is a troubling question. If America has struggled with how to deal with the pandemic and how to protect people, no doubt our second greatest struggle is going to be how do we come back from all of this, both in terms of not just the economic questions, the the financial well-being of Americans, but then to do it under the cloak of the uncertainty. Will this come back again in the fall? Will they have a vaccine created in time enough? These are indeed big challenges, aren't they? They are indeed. Uh, let me use an analogy here, be it NASCAR, Formula One, the Indy 500. Uh, what we experienced was a pit stop, not a full stop. It's a pit stop. Uh, it, was, it was egregious. It was unbelievably measurable and unprecedented, but a pit stop nonetheless. And when the car, when the tires are placed back on the vehicle and all the inspections take place, the, the car doesn't immediately go from zero to 150 in a matter of a second. It takes some time acceleration. We're going to engage that sort of applicable outline or rubric collectively as a nation. It's going to take a bit of time. There is no such animal as one button that will re-engage America fully. Absolutely not. And it's logically incoherent. There are regions that were impacted egregiously, such as New York, Detroit, Louisiana, Michigan, and so forth. And then there are regions that were impacted in a very minimal manner. Now, these are the regions that, in the beginning of May, will, again, jumpstart their economies, look at industries that have the necessary infrastructure, the capacity to implement, to continue to implement social distancing, sanitizing, uh, sanitizing workers, and so forth, in a way where the most vulnerable are protected. So it's a slow start. It's a phased start. It's regionally specific, and as it pertains to demographics, with the understanding that at all times, until we find a vaccine, it, it, it behooves us. We are, we are morally obligated to protect the most vulnerable, those that are 65 years and older and those that have a pre-existing condition. So it will be done. It just won't happen overnight. 
And and certainly in that process, as you point out, some aspects of it will be easier than others. Clearly, those regions of the country that have been less impacted by COVID-19 can probably get back online a little bit quicker than others. There will be layers of complexity as this impacts not just the capacity of America to go back online, but then which sectors. And I think toward that end, you're going to find economically certain sectors of America will be greater hit than others. For example, those of us that have been fortunate enough to be able to basically keep on working without missing a step because we work in professions that allow us to work from home have been the most fortunate through all of this experience. There are others that suddenly, even when America gets quote-unquote back up again, uh, Reverend Rodriguez, are going to be facing ongoing uncertainty because they've lost jobs and we have no way of telling what the job market is going to look like in a recovery phase. If we're bringing certain market sectors back on, maybe some come back on much later or sooner than others, in which case there may be people that are going to be stuck on unemployment for a long time to come. Without a doubt. We can't negate the fact that certain sectors of our, of our economic reality will go online in a more expedited manner. And there are those, particularly those, that require viable, measurable human interaction, i.e. the restaurant industry, uh, sporting events. And even as a pastor, I can even tell you there's even questions about how do we phase in church attendance again? How do we phase in church attendance? The idea that overnight we're going to go from an empty building to 100 percent capacity, that, that may be a misnomer. Uh, it may be a phased-in rollout for the church, maybe 25 percent capacity weeks one and two, 50 percent weeks three and four, 75 percent and so forth. But I'm just giving you hypothetical numbers for now. My point is, that, yes, without a doubt, there will be segments of our society that will be more economically impacted than others. But the objective, the collective objective, not just of the commission, but of, of all of us who have some stake in this game, the collective objective is to, of course, continue to mitigate, make sure that we save lives, that we don't put in peril those that are most vulnerable, particularly those 65 years and older, and those that have a pre-existing condition. At the same time, saving our economy. Because if we don't recuperate, if we don't kick this thing back on uh, sooner than later, the impact economically will not just be for a year or for a season. Uh, this is an impact that has the potential of impacting not just us, but, but our entire generation and possibly our children as it pertains to having to pay the debt and the liability and the bill for this COVID-19 pandemic. So we're all in this together. We have some obligations. We have to address the issue of testing. Let me make your, your audience clear about one thing. This idea that every American has to be tested prior to turning this thing back on is just unrealistic and not practical. 360-plus million Americans, whatever the number may be right now, that idea is just not practical. Uh, we don't have the time, neither do we have the capacity currently uh, and the infrastructure to execute such a task. So we need to do it in a way that is scientifically uh, sound, where models, and I mean viable models, validate the practice. Again, it's about testing. It's about, after testing, it's about contact tracing. If someone is found to be ill, it's about isolation and quarantine. So we do need to significantly increase testing, but in a way, if you think you had it, get tested. If you think you have it, get tested. And what do we do post-facto? Let's do contact tracing, find out who you were around, who was around you, in order to, re to, to really build a firewall. So it is a process, but we can do both and we can multitask. We are Americans, and we've been down this road before as it pertains to moments of crisis. 
Let's talk about one aspect that um, is perhaps not getting the attention that it needs to, but very soon out of necessity may, as uh, Washington has passed a historically huge bailout measure here to help not only corporate America, but uh, middle America as well, business America, recoup from all of this. Um, checks are being sent out to help many individuals, at least as a, a momentary, minimal stopgap measure to help people kind of get by here through the immediate leg of this crisis. But I'm thinking of minority communities that have been hit the hardest by this. We've seen certainly in places like New York City, uh, the ravages of COVID-19 hit most in particular, both the African-American and the Latino community. And there are lingering concerns about will enough be done? Will enough resources make their way to some of these families that, you know, literally live paycheck to paycheck, don't have the resources to lean on to get them through difficult times and suddenly find themselves unemployed, no prospects of employment anywhere around the corner? And in a state like California, exacerbating perhaps those issues is the large undocumented population here that has no place to go, really, to to receive any sort of emergency financial service. How do we address this major need? It is heartbreaking indeed. Indeed. Even some numbers that we have seen recently, uh, the COVID-19 African-American males, again, and not just in New York City, but across the country, Detroit, particularly New Orleans, it is it is just heartbreaking, heartbreaking indeed. It is something that we are discussing at the commission. We're likewise discussing it across the board uh, with others that are drafting policy going forward. And and there will there there will be additional elements to the bailout or to the financial uh, alleviating legislative and and subsequent bills laws that the president will be signing. There are others that are forthcoming, and there are negotiations, as you're well aware, taking place between the president and Congress right now regarding the next. My advocacy is make sure that these communities are are hopefully included, since they are arguably in many regions of the of the nation, the communities most egregiously impacted by this pandemic, both physically and economically, and in the short term and in the long term. So we have to find a we have to find a remedy. If not. We are creating for a number of years, God forbid if for a generation, of a brand new impoverished class in American urban centers. And if we think that the homeless crisis, as as amplified in San Francisco and Los Angeles and other metropolitan areas, if we think the homeless crisis was a thing prior to the pandemic, well, we may be saying something even even more egregious and even more daunting unless we address it with the next component. Now, again, Samuel Rodriguez would love to see a, a financial package that does address, but in a way where we are likewise fiscally responsible and we're able to pay the bill. Right now, the Federal Reserve is printing dollars in order to address the, the, the last bill that was signed. Now, we need to make sure we're fiscally responsible because if not, economically speaking, we're likewise jeopardizing our collective economy, and we're going to go so deep into debt that our children and our children's children will be paying the COVID-19 pandemic bill. Yeah, and I'm afraid that ship might already have been sailed. I mean, when we consider the fact that when we started this period, we had an $18 trillion deficit that's now been increased during a time of, of incredible prosperity, not reduced, but increased another $4 trillion. The president has just signed a bill tacking $2.5 trillion onto that, and no doubt more will be coming. When it's all said and done, um, America will in, be indentured slaves to our federal deficit. I just don't see any, any way around that. 
We're visiting today with Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. He has recently been appointed to the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting today with Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference and recent appointee to the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. Just before the break, Reverend Rodriguez, we were talking about the $2.5 trillion bail belt package with promises of more to come and the ongoing concern that as we pour more money in the economy to try and stave off the economic impact of the coronavirus, what of the incredible debt that we're leaving for future generations? We were some $18 trillion in debt just a scant three years ago. Three years' time, we took it to $22 trillion in debt in spite of the fact that we had phenomenal economics, lowest unemployment rate, phenomenal numbers on Wall Street, we continued to spend, and now, with a $2.5 trillion bailout package and more to come, we're looking at a federal deficit that's approaching $25 trillion. And I just don't see any way that this generation is going to dig out of that and will unfortunately end up turning this huge indebtedness over to our children and grandchildren. There may be light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. And what is it? If we can somehow capture some of the manufacturing components that we exported to China, particularly. And, and let's look at the pharmaceutical industry. Now that we're aware that, that China is responsible, and India, for producing a, the vast majority of our antibiotics, um, including the ZPAC, um, I, I, now the, the America is coming. We're having a collective wake-up call. Why should we put elements that are critical for the health, and we mean the economic and literally the physical health of fellow Americans, in the hands of a competitor, and that's for lack of a better phrase, but not 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 a, 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 a nation that's hostile, but a competitor. Uh, so now these manufacturing industries, via pharmaceuticals and other components of, of industry, may be coming back to America, may be required to come back to America. So at the end of the day, there, there's opportunities here for us to even in building ventilators. GM flipping its script in 11 days and building ventilators for the first time. You know, there's opportunities here for American innovation and creativity that may help address our long-term debt crisis. There's no doubt about the fact, uh, Reverend Rodriguez, that we have the capacity. I'm, I'm hoping and praying that we have the will. One of my lingering Indeed. concerns, even as you speak to um, the importance of having an awareness of minority communities that are going to be hardest hit in the wake of COVID-19, uh, we've already seen some of the political bickering. Well, if you produce an emergency package, you can't be giving money to quote-unquote illegals, and like it or not, they're amongst us here in California, and as you point out, our failure to address that issue that will not go away by calls for mass deportations or things of this sort, right. our no, failure to address that issue is going to mean a humanitarian crisis that will look like across our border in many third world countries, but instead it'll be right here, not only in our own backyard, but right next door. Now, we have, I think we have a moral obligation to address whoever is within the confines of our borders. As Americans, and I'm, I'm an evangelical Christian, as a Christian, uh, we can't negate those that are suffering around us. There is no sort of outlined procedural process where I ask queries regarding the legality of status in order for me to quench your thirst and feed your hungry. 
if you're suffering and you're around me, I am driven by Matthew 25 to address your need. That's our Christian ethos. Uh, again, I want people coming in legally. I want to make that clear. Uh, I want people coming into this country legally, not illegally. However, we have a crisis. We have a crisis. We have fellow Americans, and then we have those that are here that are undocumented that are likewise suffering. We're all in this together. They're not going anywhere. So, I mean, we have, again, a moral obligation to address every single segment of, of our society and do it in a way that's prudent, practical, that is compassionate, and yet addresses the needs. Final question for you, uh, Pastor Rodriguez. Um, let's talk uniquely about the opportunity before the church here. Certainly at this moment, as people have been on lockdown, they've had more time to think um, as we grapple with the spread of the disease, the number of Americans that have uh, succumbed to the illness. I think it, it forces all of us to face our own um, sense of mortality, maybe hopefully ask questions about our eternity and what that looks like. Um, clearly, there is a unique opportunity for the church to not only provide the hope of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, to a time when the world is lost and hurting and seeking answers, but I'm wondering, too, if there's an opportunity here as we begin to enter into this recovery phrase, phase for the church to really seriously think about the role that we can play at a broader level. There's a lot of things that the government can do, and there's some things that the government should do, like providing for military defense along our borders. But I'm wondering if, in terms of the humanitarian touch, if the church needs to get a little bit more serious about addressing not just the spiritual needs, but the felt needs as well, linking those two together and recognizing that when there's synergy in those two, even as Jesus was careful to feed the 5,000 before he ministered, bring sight to the blind, bring wellness to those that were sick, to heal the lame, that the church maybe can do a better job engaging in that aspect, not to suggest that we become all about the social gospel and, right. and to uh, somehow dispense with the evangel, but rather to recognize maybe the need that they really, at this time in particular, at this juncture in history, really ought to go hand in hand. What do you think? As the church, we are both vertical and horizontal. The cross really, really captures the essence of who we are, vertical and horizontal. Vertically, we're committed to the centrality of Christ, to Christ being the way for eternal life, only through Christ, John 14, 6. Absolutely. So it's the gospel message of Billy Graham. But horizontally, it is the justice, the biblical justice, not necessarily social justice, but biblical justice. Social justice has been uh, diluted, thwarted, skewed to have a political implication. So I talk about biblical justice. Of Mother Teresa, uh, of others who have engaged compassionately. So we're, we're both that. We're both Billy Graham and the Salvation Army. And, and at, this, this is the greatest hour for the Church in the history of America to rise up and shine. And I have always stated that to a great degree, uh, uh, I'm San Rodriguez now, I'm a limited government guy, and, and it's God over man and man over government. But I've, I've always had debates with other pastors, and I've, I've asked the question, maybe it's because the Church failed, because we were the primary conduit of taking care of the poor, the orphan, the widow, back in the 1800s, early 1900s. And somehow we became so enamored with buildings and temples and sanctuaries and mass crowds that we kind of negated one of our primary mandates and prime directives, Matthew 25, Luke chapter 4, Micah 6, 8. So I would love to see both. It should be the Church. You reference communities of color and even undocumented individuals. If government is not willing or inclined to assist certain demographics, right, particularly undocumented individuals, it should be the churches 
making sure that no one goes to bed hungry in their community, in their neighborhood. It should be the churches making sure that we are quenching the thirst, feeding the hungry, bringing good news to the poor, freedom to the brokenhearted, declaring the year of the Lord's favor. It should be the church. This is our greatest hour to shine. Listen, I can't negate the fact we have reached more people with the gospel of Jesus through online ministry in the past four weeks than ever before. That's not hyperbole. That's actually measurable. There's articles being written about the, the outreach in the past four weeks on online platforms. But now we're coming back to neighborhoods and communities. It's the church. This is the opportunity. Uncle Sam may be our uncle, but he'll never be our Heavenly Father. And there are things that people that are committed to the Heavenly Father can do. So God bless Uncle Sam, but the church should rise up in the name of the Lord and do and fulfill the Great Commission, bring good news to the poor, and do justice in Jesus' name. And, and I like the point that you made about the fact that there was a, a, an enormous corner that we seem to have turned about a century ago. And, and this is not meant to be a, a blanket accusation by any means. Um, but in the early portion of the history of America, we recognize the enormous obligation that the church had to, to meet needs. And it was the church, the Christian church, that developed the, pub, the first public school system, built the Indeed. first universities, built the first hospitals. At some point, we got the idea that, well, government's here. We'll let them take care of that. We'll preach from the pulpits on Sunday mornings and everything else we're going to turn over to the government. And, and while it might be true that these are things that in recent history we've seen as things that the church um, can do, it can provide beds to people that are homeless, provide soup kitchens and things of this sort. Sure, we can do that. But I think the greater mandate, as you're suggesting, is this is not something that we get to do. It's something that we have to do. Because at the end of the day, it is a gateway to be able to share the only lasting hope that will make the only true difference in people's lives, and that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And barring the capacity to deliver that message effectively, then the church itself should be the ones first facing God's judgment. The fishes and the bread, my friend, and he fed them and he preached to them. And that's our mandate. That's our task. It's not either or. It's no longer a dichotomy. It's both and. That's our mandate. That's our prophetic call. And with that, we as the church should go and do. Reverend Sam Rodriguez, president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference and newly appointed to the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. Pastor Sam, we always appreciate your time and the excellent work that you're doing. We're praying for you, brother. Keep up the good work. Thank you, my friend. Many blessings upon you. Thank you. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. You know, there have been statistics, and these are statistics I think that we all well, sadly, know too well of what's happened with the divorce rate in America. Perhaps another alarming point to just how much pressure marriage is under in our nation today is the fact that growing numbers of couples aren't even bothering. By that I mean many are deciding since more than half of marriages in America today wind up in divorce court, why even bother? Just reside together. It'll make things less complicated when we decide that we're no longer fit for each other. But is that really God's design for marriage? And if your marriage is on the rocks right now and you and or your spouse have basically decided we've gone as far as we can go, let's just pull the bandage off all in one fell swoop and get it over with. 
does that mean that your marriage is necessarily hopeless and destined to become just yet another statistic? My guest today on the program, I think, would suggest absolutely not. That perhaps, uh, much like when you need a major overhaul of your engine on the car or you, you need to go into the doctor and have surgery, there needs to be a radical approach, an intensive approach to getting your marriage off the rocks and back on track again. Joining me on the program, Dr. Jared Pingleton. He's Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. And Dr. Pingleton, great to have you on the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Craig. My pleasure. We talk about marriage, and there's been an exciting marriage, so to speak, between um, the Ministry of Focus on the Family and another organization that you have deep ties to that really has been at the forefront of saying to couples, look, you don't have to become another statistic that as bad as it might be, as challenging as your relationship may be, there is no such thing as no hope at all. That's absolutely correct. Let's talk a bit about where we're at with statistics in America today. We talk about, on average, uh, one out of every, every two marriages ends in divorce. Are we simply taking the easy way out? Is that what this is about? Well, I'm, I'm not really sure, Craig. I know that we live in a culture that is very transitory, and, you know, we, we, we live in a throwaway society. You know, uh, we, we just don't have a good sense of what covenant is about, and we get very little uh, I think effective preaching and teaching as to what a covenant actually is, and so we have been now for about three generations into a culture that has the no fault concept of of divorce, and so yeah, if we're incompatible, you know, let's just uh, call it quits. And you know, this throwaway society in which we live has unfortunately extended that to the realm of relationships, and that is absolutely antagonistic to everything that the Bible teaches. And we feel passionately about being able to understand how God is a redeemer, and not just in our heart, but in our relationships, and especially marriage here at Focus on the Family. You suggest that this is multi-generational, and you're, you're absolutely accurate on that point. And I wonder if part of the problem here is that we have multiple generations now that have never perhaps for themselves ever witnessed or experienced what a healthy, functioning marriage looks like. I mean, if, if one out of every two marriages ends in divorce, that means there's a good chance of every couple that gets together tomorrow, say, or are going to be at the altar next week, uh, likely one, if not both of them, come from a family that wound up in divorce. So maybe part of the problem is we're, we're just modeling the behavior that we've experienced because we know nothing different. We, we don't know what a healthy marriage looks like. Do you think maybe that's part of the problem, too? I, I absolutely do, Craig. I think that's absolutely correct. I uh, just wrote a book called Making Magnificent Marriages, and I, I have a whole chapter to your point of this whole difficulty that we have had of not having good examples lived out in front of us. And so we have this incredible cohabitation right now among millennials in our culture. They have seen very poor marriages modeled in front of them. And so their whole idea of try before you buy to them makes sense. But the problem with that is there's no, there's no foundation of trust. It's, it's building the proverbial marital house on sand. And without commitment, without covenant, it's impossible for a relationship to endure. And, and that's why I think we need to help people understand what a healthy marriage looks like. Um, so, and, and the irony is you know, that about 40% of first marriages end in divorce. The irony is this, for people who cohabit, their breakup rate is 80%. Wow. 
so it's like, well, I don't want to have a failed relationship, so I'm going to double my odds of <laughs> that actually happening. And that's the incredible irony and deception that I think our culture is living under these days, because uh, the vast majority of 20-somethings are either delaying marriage into their 30s or not marrying at all. They're just cohabitating. Well, you use the term covenant, and I think it's a very important one because it's a biblical one, and it is one that we have strayed from quite significantly over a number of generations, as you point out. And let's face it, if we go into a marriage or into a relationship with the idea that we're going to cohabitate to kind of take it for a test drive, both of the partners going into that relationship know deep down that at any day, the other partner could come into the door and say, you know what, I'm done. Packing my bags and I'm leaving. There's no hope. There's no sense of commitment. There's nothing there that, that is a glue to hold us together. And so no wonder when we go in with, number one, the, the baggage we have of our own brokenness from being products of broken relationships, there's such a level of distrust that we, we build that relationship then not on a foundation of trust and confidence and covenant, as you suggest, but rather it, it's built at the very get-go by making a silent statement, I don't trust you. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what a cohabitating mindset says is, hi, I love you, but I don't trust you. Will you live with me? (laughs) And do so happily ever after. (laughs) There's no basis for security. There's no basis for any sense of being able to relax. The, The whole point of sex without commitment is antagonistic to the fundamental maxim of God's universe, that without exclusivity and permanence and unconditionality, there's nothing to create security, stability, and strength in a relationship. And so there's all kinds of things then that enter into the relationship, performance pressure, comparisons with others, and an ongoing continuous threat of fear and, um, you know, if they find somebody else, why shouldn't they just jump out and hop into relationship with that other person? So it's, uh, it, it, it has a whole bunch of fear and anxiety that's just built in. So I, I just don't recommend it at all. And we wind up settling for less than the ideal. We wind up yep. settling for a marriage that exists but does not thrive. And as I think you might suggest from your background um, prior to coming on board with uh, Focus on the Family as Director of Counseling there, Dr. Pingleton was involved with the National Institute for Marriage. Would you suggest that marriages should not simply settle for getting along or second best, but in fact, under the right circumstances and, and ultimately with the right modeling and coaching, that marriages can not only survive but thrive? Is that possible? That- That is absolutely correct, Craig. I I believe that God's design for marriage is a redemptive process. Now, that's theological code word for saying that God delights in transforming blessing out of our brokenness. And the only way we can have that transformation take place is to get in touch with our brokenness. Mm. And so what marriage does, ironically, is it pulls the very worst out of us um, just by, by means of osmosis, as it were. We get to reap everything that everybody else in our spouse's world sowed into their heart before we showed up. (laughs) Hip, hip, hooray. But, you know, marriage is the hardest thing I think there is to do well. And the research bears that out, too. And not just the divorce rates, but the marriage satisfaction rates suggest that about 5 to 12 percent of American marriages are mutually fulfilling. Wow, just 5 percent. Yeah, 5 to 12 percent. And 90 percent of that 5 to 12 percent have been after 30 years or more. Mm. So marriage is hard, 
And yet, I think it is God's plan to redeem us. Well, don't you think, too, uh, you know, that if we, if we set our sights so low, uh, we have no sense of expectation coming in. We're, we're not willing to do the hard work. Uh, we right. come into the marriage relationship, admittedly or otherwise, broken. Even if, we, even if we came from a whole home where mom and dad were together the entire time, there, there's still the influence of the outside world and, and man's innate sin nature that brings a sense of brokenness into the marriage relationship. And then we set yes. no expectations at any level for excellence at all, uh, I guess when we go into marriage like that, anticipating disappointment, we shouldn't be surprised when we get it. That's true. (laughs) That's true. And yet we have all these other romanticized, idealistic expectations that come from Hollywood and Hallmark that we should live happily ever after. And that's just a, that's a romantic myth. That's a fairy tale. That's not reality. So I guess the question is, and and I'm going to ask you to stay with us for one more segment because we need to dive deeper into this. The the question then becomes, look, if we know and recognize that God has established the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship, certainly God has, as we see throughout Scripture, high expectations for what that is. God has not designed this, as some folks might think, just to bring two people together to torture each other, but in fact to, to grow with one another and as they do so grow closer to each other, closer to God, and to work through all of the baggage that, as we said before, we all bring into the marriage relationship. Now, how do we, how do we learn to, to sort of um, expunge or, or, or deal with the pain and disappointment and hurt in our life to find healing, not only in our own lives, but restoration? And your marriage, even as on the rocks and hopeless as it might seem today, you might be listening to this conversation and saying, Craig, I, I understand what, what you and Dr. Pinkerton are saying, but you guys just don't understand. You've never met my wife, or you don't know my husband, or you just right. don't know the agony and the challenges that we've been through. And we've we've talked to our pastor, and that doesn't seem to work, and, and we've read a couple of books. We maybe even went into a couple of counseling sessions, but you don't understand. It is hopeless. Is it really, or are you simply saying that you've given up on God, that your marriage is beyond God's ability to restore it? Really? Do you really believe that? If you do, it's okay to admit that. But I want you to stay right where you're at, because when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into, as we've acknowledged what the problem is, where's the hope in all of this? Dr. Jared Pinkleton is with us today. He's the Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. We're talking about an interesting marriage, a partnership, really, between our friends at Focus on the Family and the National Institute of Marriage. It has had a remarkable track record in bringing hope and healing and restoration to marriages, maybe even yours. Stay with us. We'll get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. We continue our visit today. Dr. Jared Pingleton is with us today. He is Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. We've been talking about the state of marriage in America today, and, and, and perhaps you are one of those statistics that we talked about earlier. Maybe you're at the point where you feel as if you've tried everything that you can. Your marriage is just simply hopeless. That, of course, uh, Dr. Pingleton runs um, contrarian to God's ideal for marriage. And God certainly hasn't given up on this. This is a matter, though, of, of perhaps accurately and adequately looking at 
what we're where we're at in our marriage relationship and and what God wants to do to bring about healing and restoration both in our lives individually and then together as a couple. Absolutely. God's design and plan for marriage is something that our culture has sort of adopted to feel like, well, they're not making me happy anymore, and so I need to find someone else. And that's just totally contrary to God's plan. That is, he wants us to to grow and to heal and to restore and redeem one another. But what marriage does is exposes the depths of our selfishness. It exposes the um, the, the irony that, you know, we're hoping our love will cure the other person, and then we're disappointed when it doesn't. Uh, Craig, I'm a, as a clinical psychologist, as well as a credentialed minister, one of the ironies that I've noticed over my career for 37 years is this. Without exception, almost every couple that comes into marriage therapy does so, hoping their spouse will change. <laughs> <laughs> Always the other guy's fault, right? (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, the irony is when both of us change, whether the other one does or not, then and only then can God begin to work in each person's heart and life. Well, and you know, the irony of that is you talk about a level of frustration, Doctor, because if we come into a a challenges and and a rough spot in marriage and we entirely lay the blame on the other side uh, of the marriage relationship, and I I can see in some circumstances, you know, somebody eavesdropping on our conversation right now might say, well, guys, you don't understand. My husband did this. My wife did that. And you may have an adequate point, but here's the challenge. You have absolutely no control over their thought process or their behavior. But I tell you what you do have control over, and that is your own. Exactly. And that empowering of the individual to take responsibility for their own marriage covenant, I think, is crucial. And it's revolutionary. When both people get that, even if just one person in the marriage gets that, the marriage system changes. Because here's what God wants for us, Craig. He wants us to realize, hey... My covenant has nothing to do with my spouse. My covenant has to do with me. And I I elaborate this real fully in in my book about marriage, is that, you know, the the self-respect that's generated when I keep my marriage covenant, because I promise to love my wife unconditionally on days that end in Y, as long as I'm breathing, no matter what she does or doesn't do. And even if I could manipulate or control her into keeping her marriage vow, I wouldn't recommend it because of two things. Number one, I would never know if she did that because I made her or because she wanted to. Mm. And so number two, that would actually create more insecurity for me, not, not, um, not less. It, it, it's like drinking salt water when thirsty, and that's what the culture kind of you know, emphasizes for us to do is to try to control our maid into doing what we want them to do, to well. love us and respect us. And that's not what a marriage covenant is about. It is a unilateral, unconditional commitment to dedicating myself to serve my spouse in the best ways I know how with God's help. And let's face it, if we were to analyze a failed relationship at any level, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, between two friends or two spouses, uh, oftentimes it's this issue of the expectations we place on another. And then they don't meet those expectations. Sometimes they don't even know that we have those expectations. And then we feel disappointed. And then our disappointment turns into bitterness. And the bitterness then gets a deep root in our heart. And before you know it, we've decided, ah, you're you're worthless. This marriage is never going to work out. And it's very easy to give up on it simply because we went into it with, with an inappropriate expectation of the other person to begin with. That's right. Let's talk a bit about... ...to love us and make us happy. 
Exactly. Let's talk, uh, Dr. Pingleton, a bit about uh, providing hope for couples that are right where we've been discussing. Now, we've all heard the stories about the couple that uh, calls the pastor and goes in for counseling, maybe even goes in to uh, meet with a professional counselor. And uh, for the hour that they're together, there's detente, and they're able to talk civilly because there's kind of a referee in the room. and, And then the minute they get back in the car and walk out the door, they're back to arguing. What is different in your experience about the approach that the National Institute of Marriage has taken? And again, I want to mention for listeners that have joined us late, there's a wonderful partnership now, a marriage really, between the Ministry of Focus on the Family and the National Institute of Marriage that has had an incredible success rate at bringing together marriages that are in really, really bad shape and putting them through an intensive session uh, that lasts more than just an hour. And at the end of the day, I understand that research search has demonstrated that couples that are willing to take part in in this approach, two years after they've gone through it, are still together, still married, and in fact, back on the road toward healing. What's different about the approach taken by the National Institute of Marriage? Great question, Craig. And this is what we're so excited about in at Focus on the Family is that this approach that the National Institute of Marriage does, they're located in two locations in Branson, Missouri and Rome, Georgia. They offer a very creative and unique way to help couples heal that in a, less than a week, four or five days, they can get as much progress and health and healing uh, than you would take on an average of one year of outpatient psychotherapy going once a week. What they do is a very concentrated and intensive version of helping people get to the root issues of what's going on in their marriage or what's not going on in their marriage that they want to. And they help each individual change, whether their spouse does or not. And the, the exciting thing about it is many of those couples are hanging by a thread. They've already filed the divorce papers, you know, if, if it doesn't work to, to be activated on Monday when they get home. And this is a last resort, desperation kind of thing. But, but what they do um, and have for about 10 years at the National Institute of Marriage, and, and we're so excited that now Focus on the Family is, has joined with them and they with us, is this. They ask each individual, if God were to give you a miracle in your marriage, would you be willing to accept it? Hmm. And it's so awesome to see how God shows up every single week at, at those intensives where couples deal with issues that they feel absolutely hopeless and helpless about, and yet they, they see the change that takes place in themselves and in their spouse. And the miracle stories that happen there are just awesome. They are just amazing to see how God has restored and redeemed and reconciled hurting couples. And, and this intensive time, it takes them away from the normal day-to-day environment, because let's face it, it's, it's hard to be at the office all day long or be a stay-at-home parent all day long and then go to a counseling session and then come back and you're, you're right back in the same environment. And sometimes just getting away in a, in a change of pace and a change of environment can help to clarify your thinking, deepen your understanding, and, and give yes. you kind of the space that you need. Isn't it true? Give, give them kind Absolutely. of the space that they need and to be able to work through these issues. Yes, and, and this intensive therapeutic format enables the couple to go deep. Because when you're starting to get into some deep pain and, you know, 45 minutes or 50 minutes is up, you have to sort of researcher the wound that you've surgically incised in, and opened up that, that uh, pain and, and 
put duct tape and bailing wire on it basically till next week. And what this opportunity affords is, yes, to get away in a beautiful resort-like setting that's free from distraction and very relaxing and peaceful, but yet that opportunity to work concentratedly, intensively, without distraction, without other responsibilities or obligations. They do about eight hours of therapy every day, and then in the evenings there are directed um, learning exercises and interaction kinds of opportunities that each couple can participate in as well so that they can really, really focus exclusively and intensively on their marriage. And it, that investment works. Well, and you know, put this in perspective, we bring oftentimes uh, a whole childhood, a young adult life of pain yes. and disappointment and the lack of, of appropriate uh, healthy marriage modeling if we're coming from a, an abusive home or a broken home. And then we go into a marriage relationship and, and we've got two broken people together now that are all of a sudden helping to break each other even more so, sometimes wouldn't right. be, sometimes not so. And so there's a lifetime of this hurt and disappointment and failed expectations that have accumulated. And so to say, get away for two or three days, and let's try to put a Band-Aid on that. And I like your analogy. It, it, it's a lot like having heart surgery. You need a heart transplant. Yes. If the doctor said, gee, I've got a golf game in 45 minutes, so we'll start today, then we'll search you up, then we'll come back tomorrow and we'll, we'll continue. And it might take me a week or so, but we'll finally get through it all. Well, you, you know what kind of pain and, and condition that patient would be in. So here's an intensive opportunity to work start to finish through the issues, through the pain, through the bitterness, through the disappointment. And at the end of this experience, I understand, uh, Dr. Pinkerton, that, that better than 85% of people walk away with a pretty significant breakthrough, don't they? Well, they do. And, and what the research shows that uh, they have done over the years is that after therapy, two years later, that 85% of those couples are still together that came to their anticipating divorce. So they have the best results in terms of success rates clinically of any program or any counseling kind of uh, intervention or model or modality in the country. All right. With that sense of perspective and hope, I, I trust you've heard something in our conversation today with Dr. Jared Pingleton that has said to you, okay, we still have another option here. And I want to urge you, hop on the Internet and go to nationalmarriage.com. That's nationalmarriage.com, and just get some more information. There are these intense retreats and conferences taking place all over the country, and you can go to the website to get more information. And uh, taking that first step, Dr. Pingleton, is oftentimes the, the, the step in the right direction that can ultimately lead to hope and restoration of a marriage. Absolutely. So again, on the web at nationalmarriage.com. That's nationalmarriage.com. And we're so delighted to see this marriage, really this partnership between Focus on the Family and the Ministry of National Marriage. And here now is an opportunity for you to find hope and healing and restoration of your own marriage. Again, on the web at nationalmarriage.com. And our thanks to Dr. Jared Pingleton, Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. And Dr. Pingleton, thanks again for the time and the insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me as a guest, Craig. God bless you all. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Music.